0: What is the resource that allows us to begin to live out the Word that we have come to understand? And the answer is the work of the Spirit of God.
1: Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hi, I'm Bill Wright. On today's program, Tom continues in his current series in Ephesians chapter 5, titled Watch Where You Step. We're continuing our journey through this magnificent letter from the Apostle Paul to the Ephesian church, examining the call for believers to live lives in pursuit of biblical wisdom. Today, Tom will present the most important and foundational aspect for believers in this pursuit, the work of the Holy Spirit. Though this is often misunderstood and misrepresented, you'll discover that the work of the Spirit is essential to living a life in pursuit of true biblical wisdom. Let's join Tom and find out more on The Word Unleashed.
0: Turn with me again to Ephesians chapter 5 as we continue our journey through this magnificent epistle of Paul or letter of Paul to the church in Ephesus and to the churches in the surrounding area. When you think about communication at any level, you can understand why word pictures and metaphors and similes are often very important to getting your message across. They use the common and the familiar in order to help explain the uncommon and the unfamiliar. Figures of speech are very important in human communication, even though we have so much in common. Still, they help us get our point across to the person to whom we're speaking. So imagine how much more important figures of speech become when the infinite mind of God is trying to communicate some spiritual truth to us and our little pea brains. Word pictures really do help, and the Bible is filled with such word pictures. Word pictures like God as our Father, or the church as the body of Christ, with each person a member of that body, and He the head. Those pictures give us some grasp of a spiritual reality that if it weren't for those pictures, we really wouldn't be able to understand or comprehend. But sometimes even biblical word pictures can be misunderstood and misinterpreted. One of those pictures that I think is the most abused, the most misunderstood in our day has to do with the filling of the Spirit. Of course, the filling of the Spirit describes the constant influence of the Spirit in the life of a believer. But today, its message, the message of that image, that picture, that word picture, has become a little clouded, not because of any lack of clarity in the Spirit's mind or on the part of the Spirit's communication, but because it has been abused by well-intentioned Christians. But as we'll see, understanding this word, understanding this picture, and pursuing what this word picture teaches is absolutely crucial for our spiritual life and survival. Let me remind you of where we find ourselves. We're studying this great letter of Paul to the church in Ephesus, and in the first three chapters he taught us about our new position in Christ, the incredible realities, the blessings that are ours because of Christ. Beginning in chapter 4, verse 1, and running through the the last three chapters of this marvelous letter, Paul teaches us the implications of our new position, how we should respond in light of it, and all of the commands of those three chapters flow out of one command. It's the command that appears in chapter 4, verse 1, walk worthy of your calling. Walk worthy of your calling. That is, walk in a way that's worthy of that new position you've been given in Christ. And he tells us how to do that in a series of paragraphs. Several weeks ago, we began to look at one last way the apostle tells us to walk worthy of our calling. It's the longest section of the entire letter. It begins in chapter 5, verse 15, and runs down through chapter 6, verse 9. The theme of that long section appears in the command of verse 15. Look at verse 15. Walk not as wise, or excuse me, not as unwise, but as wise. Walk not as unwise, but as wise. If we're going to walk worthy of our calling, we must walk in biblical wisdom. If you want to honor Christ and all that He's done in your life, then you are compelled to walk in biblical wisdom. Now let me remind you of how this section sort of unfolds. In verses 15 through 18, we have the command to walk in biblical wisdom. And then beginning in verse 19 of chapter 5 and running all the way through chapter 6 verse 9, we have the consequences or results of walking in biblical wisdom. What does a life look like where there's biblical wisdom? We're looking at the foundation, the command itself, which is found in verses 15 through 18. Let me read it for you again, Ephesians 5 verse 15, "'Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil.' So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. Rather, be filled with the Spirit. In those verses, Paul gives us the command to walk in biblical wisdom. Notice he tells us in verse 15, we are not to live our lives out like those God would see as unwise and foolish, but rather we are to consistently live like those whom God considers to be wise. That's the command. But in those four verses I just read for you, Paul not only gives us the command, he tells us how to carry that command out. He marks out the path to a life of biblical wisdom. Do you want to live wisely, biblically wisely in this world? Well, there are several crucial components of such a life, and we've been looking at them together. The first component, if you want to follow this command and live in biblical wisdom, is to examine your ways. Examine your ways. Verse 15 Be careful how you walk. Be careful means to contemplate, to think about, to weigh carefully. If we want to live in biblical wisdom, we have to examine our lives. The height of foolishness from God's perspective is an unexamined life, a life simply lived from day to day with no thought of the choices made or the direction and the end of that life. The second crucial component of a life of biblical wisdom that we've already seen together comes in verse 16, seize every opportunity. If you're going to walk in biblical wisdom, you've got to be diligent to seize every opportunity, making the most of your time because the days are evil. We often take that verse out of its context, but in context, Paul is saying, you and I have to seize every opportunity to pursue a life of biblical wisdom. A third crucial component to a life of biblical wisdom that we have seen together comes in verse 17, know and understand God's will. Know and understand God's will. Look at verse 17. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. He's talking here, as we discovered together, not about some esoteric feeling or some some mystical direction, but instead he's talking about what is revealed between the covers of this book. That is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And we are to know what God has revealed. So this understanding then of God's will comes, as we discovered, through an understanding of His Word, through prayer as we ask God to help us understand that Word, and ultimately through Christ, in whom is found wisdom itself. So then, a life of biblical wisdom is a life that understands God's revealed will in His Word and does it. So, we have God's will. It's revealed in His Word. How do we come to understand that Word? The answer is through the work of the Spirit. But here's a more important question. We all know, if we've lived as a Christian any time at all, that there is a great gulf between knowing and understanding the Word of God and actually carrying it out on a day-to-day basis in our lives. You ever have that problem? Do you know more than you do? What is the bridge, if you will? What is the resource that allows us to begin to live out the word that we have come to understand? And the answer is the work of the Spirit of God. That's the message of verse 18. Verse 18 introduces us to the fourth and final crucial component for a life of biblical wisdom. You want to live a life of wisdom? Here's the fourth key. Be filled with with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Look again at verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. You know, that's really a surprising contrast, isn't it? I mean, why would Paul contrast being filled with God's Holy Spirit with being drunk with wine? It appears that he has simply put together two equally important but unrelated commands. What you have to understand here is this verse has context. The first half of that verse has context. Paul's focus is not on the first half of the verse. Instead, the first half of that verse and the command not to get drunk merely serve to help explain the second half. And it's in the second half of that verse that we get the primary command that fits into the flow of the context we're studying together. You see, in this verse, listen carefully, in this verse and in this positive command, we discover the means by which biblical wisdom that we have come to understand from the Word of God becomes a part of us, becomes a part of our daily habits. Here's how you get from knowledge to life. Paul is telling us the means by which we can actually acquire biblical wisdom from the Word of God and live it out. It is by being filled with the Spirit. We're going to be doing a little heavy sledding and I just want to prepare you for that. Put on your thinking caps and stay with me. It's absolutely crucial that you understand what I'm going to cover today so that you understand what it means to be filled with the Spirit. We're going to start First of all, by considering the New Testament role of the Holy Spirit. What role does the Spirit play in believers' lives in the New Testament? Number two, we're going to look at the current confusion about the Spirit. Why is there so much difference among professing Christians on this whole issue of what the Spirit is to do and not to do? And then thirdly, we'll look at the true filling of the Spirit, or we'll begin to look at the true filling of the Spirit. Alright, with that roadmap in your minds, let's start by looking at the New Testament role of the Spirit. What role does the Spirit play in the lives of New Testament believers? Well before we can really answer that question, we have to ask a question before it, which is what role did He play in the lives of Old Testament believers? So let's do that. Let's kind of start there as we look at the New Testament role of the Spirit. What did He do? What was the primary work of the Spirit in the lives of Old Testament believers? Three key words, if you remember these words, you'll have the essence of his role in the lives of Old Testament believers. Number one is regeneration. Regeneration, that is the imparting of new life, of spiritual life. This is always the work of the Spirit of God. Jesus essentially affirmed this to Nicodemus. You remember when he interacted with Nicodemus, who was a teacher of the law, understood the law of God in the Old Testament? Jesus is talking to him on the terms of the Old Testament. And he says to him in John 3, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is what? Spirit. It takes the Holy Spirit to produce spiritual results in someone. Do not be amazed, therefore, Jesus said, that I said to you, you must be born again. He's saying to this teacher of the law, listen, don't you understand this? This is is there in the Old Testament. You should understand it. And so in the Old Testament, people were redeemed, they were saved, they were regenerated by the work of the Holy Spirit. Only the Spirit can impart that kind of life. That's what Jesus said. So they were saved in that sense in the same way we are. The Spirit made them alive just as at a moment in time for those who are of us who are in Christ, He makes us alive. They in anticipation of the cross, we in looking back to what Christ accomplished at the cross, but they were regenerated, they were made alive with spiritual life by the Spirit of God. Word number two, sanctification. Sanctification, that is the Spirit progressively made Old Testament saints more holy. Remember, they are called in a number of places in both Old and New Testaments, holy men. In fact, even Peter refers to them as holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, speaking of the prophets in the Old Testament. How do you get to be holy? How does an unregenerate sinner get to be holy, get to be a saint, get to be practically holy? and held up as they are in the New Testament as these models of virtue. How does that happen? Well, it doesn't happen by the flesh. We know that, right? I mean, in Galatians 3, Paul is dealing with that very thing, and he says, listen, you Galatian believers, you have begun by the work of the Spirit. You were regenerated by the Spirit. You were given new life by the Spirit. Will you now be perfected by what? The flesh? What's the answer? No, of course not. It's impossible. You can't begin by the work of the flesh, by your own efforts, and you can't continue or be perfected, be sanctified by your own efforts. It's the work of the Spirit of God. So if there are any believers in the Old Testament who were sanctified, and there were, it had to have been the work of the Spirit of God. And so while there are a couple of differences we'll talk about in a moment, there were a lot of similarities between what God did in their lives and what He does in ours. Regenerated by the Spirit, sanctified by the Spirit. Number three, empowered. Special empowering for a specific task. This wasn't for every Old Testament believer, but it was for some. They were especially empowered for either a a long time or a short time, but for a specific task. Let me give you a couple of examples. Turn back to Exodus 35. This is a bit of an unusual one. It's not for something you would expect. Exodus 35, notice verse 30. They're building the tabernacle, that tent that was going to be the representative of God's throne room, the Holy of Holies being his throne room there above the Ark of the Covenant. And so this was like his portable throne room that went around in the middle of Israel. And so they're building it, and they want it to be built right. Verse 30, then Moses said to the sons of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of of Judah. Verse 31, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God. For what in? In wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all craftsmanship to make designs for working in gold and in silver and in bronze and the cutting of stones for settings the carving of wood so as to perform in every inventive work he has also put in his heart the ability to teach this to others both he and a holy ab verse 35 he's filled them with skill to perform every work of the engraver designer embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet in fine linen of, as of a weaver Performers of every work and makers of designs. Apparently, when the children of Israel came out of, e- out of Egypt, there was nobody in their midst who had this capacity, who had these skills, this ability. And so God, in the, in the person of his spirit, moves on these two men and especially equips them to do this task. You see it with the leaders of the country as well. Joshua, we're told, the Spirit of the Lord came on him in this way in Numbers twenty-seven, eighteen, You read it with the judges as you work through the book of Judges, those regional leaders in the nation of Israel during the darkest time of their history, Othniel and Gideon and Jephthah and Samson, are all said to have the Spirit come upon them to prepare them to lead, to serve in that role that they were given. Saul, the first king of Israel, we're told, the Spirit came upon him, to equip and prepare him to fulfill his role. Let me show you one other. Look at David, 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 16. Right after he's anointed king, by the way, he's not going to become king for more than a decade, probably about 13 to 15 years at this point. But he's anointed king privately by Samuel here, verse 13, 1 Samuel 16. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. Watch what happens. At that moment, the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. In other words, at that moment, he was already a true believer. You see that in the context of 1 Samuel. He already was a true believer in God, but when he was anointed to be the king of Israel, the Spirit of God came on him and specially empowered him to fulfill that unique role, that unique function. Theologians sometimes call this special empowering of the kings the theocratic anointing. Maybe you've heard that term, maybe you haven't. But that was primarily the role of the Spirit in the Old Testament, those three things, regeneration, sanctification, and empowering. Now, let's ask the question then, how did the Spirit's role change after Christ, after specifically that unique manifestation of his presence at Pentecost in Acts 2. How did his role change after that? Primarily, two ways. He was still regenerating, he was still sanctifying, and from time to time still specially empowering people, but there were two things that changed that weren't true in the Old Testament that become true in the New Testament. Number one, the indwelling of the Spirit. The indwelling of the Spirit. If you read the Old Testament carefully, there are a few people in whom the Spirit is said to dwell. Joshua, for example, in Numbers 27, 18. Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 2, 2. Daniel, in Daniel 4, 8, and 9. Micah, the prophet, in his prophecy, chapter 3, verse 8. All of those are said to have the Spirit in them. But, By and large, when you look at the Old Testament, that was not a common way to refer to true believers in the Old Testament. There's no indication that that was a common reality in the time of the Old Testament. In fact, Jesus tells us that the Spirit now permanently indwells the believer in the New Testament time in some way that's distinct from what He did in the Old Testament time. Let me show you this. Turn to John chapter 14. John 14, this is the night, of course, before his crucifixion. It's in the upper room discourse. John fourteen sixteen. Look back at verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. How's that going to happen? Verse 16. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever, that is, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Now, there are a couple of expressions you need to notice here. Verse 16, that he may be with you. Notice this is poised as the future. This has not yet happened. That he may be, and the the Greek word for with here is a word which means in your midst, in the middle of you, in the middle of a group, amongst you, however you want to say it in the middle. Verse 17, there's another interesting expression. Notice he says, he abides, Into the verse, he abides with you. Notice that's present tense. Already that's a reality, Jesus says. He currently abides, and here he uses a different Greek word for with. It's the word para, which means by your side. He currently abides by your side. And then in verse 17, he ends it with, and he will be in the future in you. That is, within you, inside of you. Now, this clearly implies that in the Old Testament, before the New Covenant ministry of the Spirit really came and began at Pentecost in Acts 2, the Spirit was with them in the sense that he was by their side. But Jesus tells his disciples here on the night before the crucifixion that when he leaves, there's going to be a change in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And it's going to be to their advantage. In fact, keep your thumb there and turn over a page to John 16, 7. This is shocking, really. How many of us would love to have lived in the time of Christ to have accompanied him and his disciple and would see that as far superior to what we enjoy today? Is that not true? Well, listen to Jesus. 16, verse seven, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go away, I will send him to you. So something the Spirit is going to do and to be is an advantage to us over the personal presence of Christ.
1: That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with Part 5 of his series, Watch Where You Step. Tom will have Part 6 for you on our next program, and we hope you'll join us then. We'd love to hear from you. And if you haven't reached out before, or if you're a first-time listener, we'd like to send you Tom's book, Jesus' High View of Scripture, free of charge. Just subscribe to The Word Unleashed on our website, and we'll mail you a free copy of Tom's book. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. And don't forget to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org.